So this year has been a year of not good news. And I don't just mean 2021. I'm talking about if we just do the last 12 months. It's been hard to find good news. As a matter of fact, it seems like the news has found new ways to anger us, upset us, disappoint us, hurt us. You know, I, I, in a, when I was back in college, uh, I worked as a newspaper editor for our college newspaper, both, both the colleges I went to, and uh, we, we had classes on newspaper writing, um, which there's not a lot of anymore. Um, but the newspaper writing that's out there, um, we always talked about how if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning the worse the news, the more likely somebody's going to read it. The more likely they're going to click it. The more likely that they're going to buy it. And so this has been kind of the tale of 2020 and into 2021, hasn't it? So we all know that that's what's being done. We all know that the news is about upsetting us to keep us there, keep us glued so we don't change to something more interesting. We all know that, but yet we still keep doing it, don't we? During the lockdown last year, um, in April or May, uh, actor John Krasinski, famous from The Office, decided he was tired of the news, and so he made a YouTube show called Some Good News. And he would bring his actor friends on and celebrities, and they would tell stories about good things that are happening. They'd highlight only good stories. Uh, One of my favorites was there was a young girl who right after the lockdown happened, she was supposed to go see a Broadway musical, and she didn't get to go. And so he gave her Broadway tickets, but then the lead from the Broadway musical came on the call and said, we can do one better. Let's, let's sing you a song. And so the entire cast of the Broadway musical got on a Zoom call and serenaded this little girl. And she was just beside herself with happy. And you can't watch something like that and not go, oh, that makes me feel good inside. And don't we all want that feeling good? We want that there's something right with the world. See, the thing is, and and the reason why we're focusing on the gospel right now is because many of us have forgot that. We think the gospel is something that gets us into heaven when we see Jesus when we die. But in actuality, it's everything from the moment we give our hearts to Christ, the moment we heed his call, until the moment we die. It is the news we are to live in daily. So part of our goal in this gospel is to delight in that. It should inform how we do everything, from parenting to working to resting to everything. Now, this isn't a set of new rules. Instead, this is new joy. Because if the good news is true, then we should have that same feeling that that young girl had when the entire cast sang to her of, oh, I'm special. We are special because of what God has done. And so we're going to look into that as we go. So first thing we've got to talk about is what does the word gospel even mean? The word gospel comes from the Greek. It's from the word euangelion. Euangelion. The letters E and U mean good, and angelion is where we get the word angel. So it means good message or good messenger, good news. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 defines the gospel as the power of, God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. This word power comes from the Greek word dynamis, which is where we use, we got the word dynamite. 
So what he's saying is, he's saying the gospel is the explosive power of God for salvation. Now when I say explosive power, it doesn't mean he comes into your life and blows you up and you're dead. No, it's power that it gets into your life and the power spreads everywhere in your life. The entirety of your life is now filled with that gospel power. See, the gospel was never meant to be a get out of hell card. It was meant to be an entire life change that changes how we do everything. See, that, that truncating it into this, this is what I do in order to get out of hell, is yes, it's true. That's a part of the gospel. But that's the bare minimum. There's so much more to it. From that study guide I referenced earlier, the opening line says this, we need the gospel. The gospel is not merely good advice or good ideas. It's the good news that changes everything. The gospel is not the ABCs. It is the A to Z of Christianity. We will never outgrow or outmature the gospel. This good news is a person. It's Jesus. The news that Jesus has died, risen, and reconciled us to God has direct implications, yes, for our future state, but also how we live now. If you want to know how to live the life you're supposed to, if you want to know how to live like Christ, you must know the gospel, and it must affect how you live and do everything. So here is, uh, Pastor Tim gave me this little kind of list. So this is what he says the gospel is, and I think it works. There is a king. His name is Jesus. He summons us to join him, and he is sovereign over all. I mean, that's it right there. Not just sovereign over, oh, you go to heaven when you die. He's sovereign over every part of our life, from the moment we become a believer till the moment we breathe our last. See, the gospel story is the story of the entire universe. It's the story of how God made us, how we fell, how Jesus came and redeemed us, and what we will do in the new creation. I love Tim Keller's definition. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We are wretches. We do not deserve heaven. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we dared ever hope. So those are the two things. One, we are not getting ourselves to heaven based on what we do, but Jesus is the one that gets us to heaven, that gives us the life now that we need to lead. Probably another way to put this would be, this idea of kingdom. We're just getting done talking about King Jesus, and we're now transitioning into the gospel, right? And as we do that, we've been talking about kingdom. So if we, we get our minds wrapped around a kingdom of God is not a place he rules, but it's who is ruling. And this kingdom of God was announced in the garden, rejected by Adam and Eve, returned by Christ, and will be consummated at the end times. And that's the picture, that's the hope that we have. And that's why the gospel is good news. The good news is sin does not win. Death does not win. That there is life and there is life abundantly. That is the good news. So there we go. That's kind of a beginning. We're gonna continue to push in on that, that gospel bit as we move forward. So here is our big idea for today. King Jesus's sovereign reign extends to us in his summons for us to abandon everything to witness his extraordinary kingdom. I know it's wordy, but every single word in there matters. King Jesus is sovereignly reigning, and it extends to every part of our life, so much so that when he says, come join me, we would be willing to give up everything 
to then follow him, to witness what he's going to do with this kingdom. And not just any kingdom, not just Camelot, not just some imagined kingdom, but an extraordinary, an extraordinary kingdom that does not fit any mold, any imagination that we can handle. That's the kingdom we're called to. So as we finish up Matthew today, we, we're going to finish up chapter 4, and we're going to put off the rest of Matthew until the fall. When we get back together in the fall, we'll start right into the Sermon on the Mount, and that's when it gets really good. Not that it hasn't been good so far. But verse uh, 18 through 25, we've got to look at starting in verse 17. We've got to go back one verse to where Scott was two weeks ago. And this says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what we need to understand is that's a summary statement of the fact that Jesus was going around saying this. He was going around teaching this. It's pretty possible that Peter and Andrew, James and John had already seen Jesus before. In John chapter 1, it says that Andrew had been following John the Baptist when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So we, we can kind of get the idea that Jesus is a known quantity in the, the region of Galilee. So they knew Jesus' teaching. But what's important here, what Matthew wants us to get, is Jesus didn't just come to preach, teach, die, and raise again. He came to make disciples. He spent an inordinate amount of time making these disciples into people that will tell others about Jesus. So this hits our first part of the big idea. King Jesus' sovereign reign extends to us in his summons for us to abandon everything. Abandon everything. Give everything up for him. Now, when you hear that, you're going, oh, I don't want to give up everything. You mean you're saying, I can't have these friends. You're saying, I can't have this job. I can't have this or that. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is you change your priorities. Your priorities now become God's priorities. And you put God first because he's the ruler whether you like it or not, he's the ruler, and you either submit to that or you're in opposition to that. And so he may send us elsewhere, or he may say, go back to where you are, but do it for me, don't do it for you. See, the question always is, is am I willing for God to tell me who I am, or am I going to tell God who I am? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the ruler of your life? This turns everything on its head. We talked about that last week, how God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Our world says it's all about you. Have it your way. Just do it. Get it. Go get it. You can do it. God's way is, no, God's got it. And then it falls out of that, flows into that. So verse 18 sets the stage for this section. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus spends really a bulk of his time. And as a kid, I always thought Jesus was like in and out of Jerusalem and kind of hanging out all over Israel. But really, he's in Galilee for a big chunk of his time. And this is where a lot of those stories that we're familiar with happen. This sea is 12 and a half miles by 7 miles. It's a lake. It's called a sea because that's what they called it. But it's a big lake. It's 600 feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains that are 3,000 feet above sea level. 
This kind of explains why those storms would crash in. If you remember the story when, when Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples think they're going to die because a storm came up out of nowhere. These fishermen were experts at predicting those storms, but they still came out of nowhere. And so this is the place where we see most of it happen. It's a freshwater lake. It is known for its fishing and its beautiful beaches. To this day, it's a resort area. As a matter of fact, Peter and Andrew were originally from a city called Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means fish town. I wonder what that place smelled like. And fishing was second to agriculture in this area. Fishing was the second most popular way of earning an income, of food, and so on. So these guys are casting their nets. They're throwing out nets to catch fish. And they would use a drop net that would fall onto the fish, and they would gather the ends and pull the fish in together. And this was what they knew, and this is what they did. All four of the people in this story. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Literally, that word follow me means come after me. Abandon what you know and follow me. This isn't just a physical call. He's not saying, follow me, you know, like when you're leading kids from class and they all have, they're all right behind you. But this means also, do what I do. Be like me. It's a very powerful word to say, follow Jesus as an example. Jesus was considered a rabbi by these men. And it's very clear throughout he'll be called rabbi. A rabbi is a Jewish teacher. It's just a term used for a Jewish religious teacher. And rabbis don't usually do this. What rabbis usually do is they begin teaching, and they get a whole group of people following them, and then they go, okay, let's see, you look good. I want you. You're really smart. I'll take you three into my inner circle. The rest of you, you can follow me, but you're out of luck. Jesus does that exact opposite. These guys are not following Jesus. He goes and says, hey, you, you fishermen, come here. You're following me now. What a crazy backwards way of doing it. Now, maybe they knew Jesus. Maybe they didn't. Either way, Jesus reverses the process. He doesn't go and pick from the pick of the litter. Instead, he goes and finds those that are farthest away. Matthew is focusing clearly on how quickly they respond. And this response is living with him, obedience to him, ministering with him, and ultimately complete allegiance to him. And these men are going to do that. These fishers of men, not professionally trained rabbis, not the Pharisees, instead skilled labor workers, blue-collar workers that God brings in. And isn't it great that Jesus doesn't go, hey, you know what? I'm going to make you accountants of men. No, I'm going to make you architects of men. No, I'm going to make you scribes of men. See, Jesus knew that if he said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, they would, knew, they would know what that meant. They would get an idea of what they were doing. This reminds me of what Moses and David saw. What were Moses and David's jobs? They were shepherds. So when God goes to them, he doesn't say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He says, no, I'm going to make you shepherds of my flock. See, God came and meet, met them where they were and took the skills they had and said, I'm going to use them for my glory. And honestly, this is, a, this is one of those, again, it's so, once you start looking for it in the Bible with Jesus, especially in Matthew, you can't help but see, he flips everything on its ear. In the Old Testament, the nets that were cast in all the stories, whether it be Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, the net was for what? It was for judgment. 
It says, the devil casts his net and drags those in. The Lord casts the net and pulls those in to go to judgment. And now it's flipped on its head. It's flipped on its head. I'm going to go put a net out to bring you to safety. I mean, even when we fish, the fish don't survive. That's the point. Catch the fish, kill the fish, eat the fish. That's the story. Instead, Jesus goes, I'm going to catch you, and I'm going to give you life, and you're going to truly live for the first time. I'm going to save you from damnation. What a cool flip on its head. Spurgeon, of course, has, has it down. Listen to this. When Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not remember what we are, but we ought to think of what he will make us. It is follow me, and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. It is not follow me because you're ready. It's not follow me because you're something special, but follow me so I will make you. It did not seem likely that humble fishermen would change the world. These apostles, who would have said, I can make founders of a church out of peasants in Galilee? And But that is exactly what Christ did. When we are brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our unworthiness, we may feel encouraged that to follow Jesus because of what he will make us. See, these disciples had nothing to bring Jesus to them. It doesn't say they were the best fishermen. It doesn't say they were really knowledgeable in the Bible. They were there, and he called, and they responded. And that's it, the power of Jesus' words. And notice here, too, the, the call isn't to be saved. It's not, hey, Peter and Andrew, come over here, and I'll save you. He says, come over here so you can help me save others. Isn't it interesting that the call on the disciples was not their salvation, but it was the salvation of others. It was saving others. See, we have to get it out of our minds that, yes, Jesus died for every single one of us, but it's never meant to be something we keep to ourselves. It's meant to be something we can't help but declare. Like when I was talking about the newspaper person yelling out the news. That's what it is to herald. That word evangelism is to yell out what you know to be true. It's to yell out the good news. And that's what we'll see these disciples do. Now, it did take the resurrection for them to get it, but eventually they got it. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. The word immediately just means simply no hesitation. They just took off. Jesus knows how to teach them to catch men because he has caught two men. His word has power. Matthew's stressing two things here. He's stressing the fact that they did it immediately and that it was radical. Radical. They just said, all right, we're leaving the boat, we're leaving the nets, let's go. They didn't say, well, can we put the boat away and can we, can we get cleaned up? We smell fishy. Let's, you know, instead it's, okay, let's go. Game on. We're following Jesus now. The call of Jesus many times invites a com involves a complete break with a previous lifestyle. See, they had no clue where they were going. They had no idea what being a fisher of men actually meant. It's not like they were sitting there and Peter's going, you know, someday I could imagine that they'll be naming churches after me. And Andrew's going, you know, someday I'll be the patron saint of an island off the coast of Europe. And, and uh, you know, they're not doing that. They're not, they don't know what's coming. But they say, we'll follow you because they know who they're following. And then we get to verses 21 and 22. This is parallelism where you tell two stories that have a similar main point so that the audience will go, yeah, I get this. 
So the story of Peter and Andrew and the story of James and John, what's the repeating part? Follow me, immediately they followed. And so he's saying, this is important, don't miss this. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. James is the brother um, of John who is killed by Agrippa in chapter 12 of Acts, one of the first Christian martyrs. Notice it says they're mending their nets, and I just love this because when we put the entire gospel together in Luke 5, it says that Jesus goes out and sees Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they're fishing. They fished all night, and he says, put your, put your nets on the other side. And they're like, okay, and they do it, and they have that huge catch. And what does it say about their nets? They were ripping. So right here, Matthew doesn't even tell us about the miracle. It's like, oh, it's just a miracle. Jesus does them all the time. But he mentions the mending. He ties it to that, this miraculous catch. These guys knew that Jesus was something special. And notice, Simon and Andrew give up a boat. They give up their job. James and John give up their job, but they're family as well. Now, this does not mean that God says our families don't matter. And if you've been around the Bible long enough, you know that throughout, it's a huge priority. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to talk about this in chapter 5 of Matthew. Rather, it's Jesus saying, my first allegiance is to God. My second is to my family, my job, whatever else comes next. See, the problem we have is we misunderstand tithing. We think tithing is how we should run our lives. We think, I'm going to give God my 10% and I get my 90% of me, of my time, of my energy, of my thoughts. Instead, Jesus goes, no, that's not going to fly for me. I don't want, I don't want Peter and Andrew and James and John one day a week, the other six are, are, are theirs. He says, I want you 100%. I want you all the way with me. Luke 9, he says, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the service in the kingdom. Jesus calls us to break with those loyalties to make him our primary loyalty, first and foremost. Now, it'll look different for every single one of us when we follow Christ. Some of us, it means we'd stop doing what we're doing and we go a totally different direction when it comes to a career, when it comes to where we live, to what we do. Others, it's just a redeemed version of what you already had been doing. I mean, that's an incredible testimony. Yeah, we love to hear the stories of people who go, you know, I became a follower and now I'm a missionary. And they go do something totally different than what they were doing before. But what an incredible testimony for the person who's been doing it their way and then becomes a believer and now does it God's way. You're right there. Your mission field is your job. Your mission field's where you go every day. What a cool picture of that. We see that Jesus makes these disciples come and be my students and I will teach you how to catch men. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was killed for his faith, the cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon all attachments to the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of an encounter with Christ. So this explosive power, this, this dynamis is right here. Jesus simply utters words and the brothers respond. The power of his words. No wonder Paul says it's the power for salvation. There is power here, he has authority. But you also have to notice, too, that the power only works if you respond to it. It's not enough to say, I believe the gospel, 
but you don't respond to it. You don't respond. Because that's what it says. It says it's power for salvation for all who believe, for everyone who believes. So our response is to respond to the gospel. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing. See, we try to, we look at it like, we, we believe, okay, Peter and Andrew, they followed Jesus for a day, and then they went back to their lives and did their own thing. Because that's how we think of the gospel. It's a one-time thing, one and done. Instead, look at Peter and Andrew's lives. From the moment Jesus says, follow me, their lives are never the same until they die. That's the way it's supposed to be with each of us. So what's first in your life? What's your fish? What's your net? What's your boat? How do you view your family? Are you willing to give those up and say, they're not as important as my Christ? Or are we going to hold them up as more important? The reprioritized life is what Christ wants here. And then he takes the life that you have and he remakes it. He recreates it. Because that's what he's in the business of doing. He's in the business of recreating. Henry Ward Beecher said, the strength and happiness of a man consists in finding out which way God is going and then going the same way. Again, I want to lean on Spurgeon because he has another good summary of this. We are not called to leave our daily business or to quit our families. That might be rather running away from the fishery than working at it in God's name. But we are called most distinctly to come out from among the ungodly, to be separate and to not touch the unclean. We cannot be fishers of men if we remain in the element with men. Fish don't catch fish. Sinners don't convert sinners. Ungodly men don't convert ungodly men. And what is the point? A worldly Christian will not convert the world. If you are of the world, no doubt the world will love you, but you can't save it. If you are in the darkness, you can't get into the light. If you march with the enemies of God, you are on the defeated side. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church of God. And that was true in Spurgeon's time 120 years ago. It is true in our time. So that's the first part. God summons us to abandon our priorities and reorient them to the priorities of him. And then secondly, the king's, Jesus' sovereign reign extends to us in his summons for us to abandon everything to witness his extraordinary kingdom. So we're going to focus on that second part now. The word witness actually has a twofold meaning. One is to observe. See, the disciples, they walk around with Jesus, and I, I feel like most of the time the look on their faces are, is this. Because as they're walking around, they go, did he really say that? Oh my gosh, did he just do that? Well, I, I, I think most of the time they're just perplexed at how amazing it is, but also it doesn't make sense to them. But also, besides the fact that they're watching all this, they're also going to be witnesses in that they're going to go and proclaim it. Every single one of these guys, except for John, is killed because he won't stop talking about Jesus. And like I said last week, it's not for lack of trying. John, they tried to kill too. So this is, this is their constant proclaiming and sharing. Their lives are changed. And then this witness to this extraordinary. I love that word, extraordinary. It's outside of the ordinary. It's outside of the norm. It's, it's otherworldly. Actually, it's original, original worldly. Because see, when God created the world, he had it a certain way. And then we mucked it up. We messed it all up. 
And then now he's bringing that back. And so each of us, and I love this, each of us gets to be an ambassador for the king in that we get to bring a little bit of the kingdom to this dark world. And is there not a better place in the world, in the United States, to live than right here? This is a dark place. There are not a lot of believers here. As a matter of fact, I read one time that the percentage of believers on the I-5 corridor in Washington and Oregon, the percentage is lower than the percentage of believers in mainland China. That's a stark reality. We live in a place that needs the light. And if we're in the light, we should share it. It should be obvious. People around us should be so, knowing that we're a Christian, that that's the first thing that comes to their mind. Not that they've got a nice yard. Not that they drive a nice car. Not that they seem to be nice and they smile and wave, but yeah, those are the Christians. So what does that look like for each of us? I don't know, but the Lord's going to tell you. So Jesus is declaring the kingdom. Throughout, throughout Matthew, he's going to have teaching followed by healing, and then teaching followed by healing. And we're going to see this throughout, because in Matthew's minds, Jesus' words are power, but the healing shows that there's even more power in those words. There's even more power in the fact that Jesus' words are the one who can heal you. Verse 23, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, that's a place of worship for the Jews, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There's about 300,000 people who lived in Galilee. It's a small area. It's about 45 by 25 miles. There's 200 villages or so. Jesus could have walked it all and visited every single village in about three months. And it says he went through it over and over again. And notice the two things he's doing. It says he's teaching and he's healing. He's teaching He's telling us exactly what we are to do. But what is he teaching? He is teaching the proclamation of the kingdom of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming it, preaching it. See, teaching and preaching always go hand in hand with Jesus. The teaching is turn your lives around. The preaching is the kingdom is here. So if you imagine, he's telling you what you need to do, and then he's telling you why you should be excited to do it. The preaching is the passion. The preaching is the proclaiming. See, remember when we talked about the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom was created, was inaugurated by God in Eden, and then we messed it up. We rejected it. Now Jesus has come. This is where we are camping out. The kingdom is here. It is here now. And then I love this, healing every disease. Not like the guys on TV who, oh, you've got a leg that's too short and they show you how to fix it. Not putting hands on somebody who's just got headaches, and maybe those are true, but it says Jesus here heals every single one. They come to him, they walk away healed. See, this is a taste of things to come. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, yeah, you know, all these these diseases, all these broke down bodies, all these things that don't work in the kingdom that will be coming at the end of time, none of that's here. What does it say? It says, I will wipe away every tear. There will be no weeping and mourning, and death is destroyed. I mean, if that doesn't make you excited that you're going to have a body someday that will never break down and never have a problem, I don't know what will get you excited. (laughs) So Jesus ministers to their physical and their spiritual needs. The kingdom is here all of Galilee, all of the diseases, all of the afflictions. That word gets used over and over again. 
And then look how John, uh, Matthew finishes this. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various disease and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is having people drawn to him. Several of those places are Gentile places. So we're having Gentiles and Jews. We're already seeing the bridging of the animosity between the two. Notice that he is sovereign over all the areas that were messed up by the fall. All of the areas. The first one is the physical, and we see that. Diseases and pains. That means physical diseases and physical body pains. Then we see those oppressed by demons. That's the spiritual. He's here for the spiritual. And notice, too, that Matthew doesn't say all sins come from a demon doing it to you. He separates them very clearly because that's the way it's supposed to be. And people misunderstand that and they think, well, you, you Christians believe an ancient document that believes a demon behind every disease. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew says sometimes there's demons, but there's also diseases and sickness and pain. And then we get this third one where it says seizures and paralytics. It's not a great translation. It, those are the words that are there. But let me tell you kind of the, the, the meaning behind this. There was a classification of diseases that people didn't understand in this time. And so they said they have something wrong with their brains. And so a good way to understand this in our minds is that this is mental illness. This is mental illness. Jesus heals the physical, the spiritual, and the mental in all these people. Now, does that mean he's going to do that right here and right now? No. But it does mean when we get to heaven, it's all healed. It's all the way it's supposed to be. No more sin, no more death, no more dying, no more wearing out. And this sickness, again, it, it, it's not because of sin, it's not because of whatever, but it's because of the fall, and Jesus is saying, we're done with that. It's going to go away. So what does this mean for us? Well, in our study guide, there's a nice little, on the first page at the very bottom, there's a nice little summary paragraph. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what it means, because it's a little wordy, but I like it. While the gospel doctrine is proclaimed from the pulpit on Sundays, like we just did, and reinforced in our life groups, which you'll do with those books and the study guides, we believe gospel culture is built after Sunday's benediction, when we rub shoulders with one another. A gospel culture is fostered as we share pain, painful prayer requests, painful needs with one another in our living rooms. It grows over coffee. It grows over a meal through discipling relationships where we are honest and humble with each other confessing our failures, bearing each other's burdens, and sharing our joys. So that is the goal of our study in the gospel, to grow a deeper gospel culture starting now. And so what that means for us is we need to take the gospel and apply it to every part of our lives. But the problem is, is that we get in the way of doing that. We forget the gospel. So we need help. I can only do so much from the pulpit and my time on the phone and talking to you guys I need all of you to understand the gospel and help each other see the gospel because that's where life is. Life is in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how it changes your life. So we need to make a culture at this church around the gospel. We need to make a lifestyle around the gospel. It's not a transaction. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a lifestyle that needs to change. 
leaving things behind, changing priorities, having hard conversations. These are all things that we don't do naturally, so we need each other to be able to do this. So get on board with this. Maybe you've tried Christianity and it's something that you've said, okay, yeah, I, I get it. It's a bunch of good moral teachings. It is that, but it's so much more. It's so much more than just be good, clean yourself up. It's actually, you get clean from the inside out. And it starts with your choice to follow and believe the gospel. And if you do that, life change happens. Will you guys go with me on that trip? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get your gospel, that we get to understand how you do things. Lord, thank you that it's not veiled, it's not hidden, it's right in front of us. But Lord, we are so quick to forget it. Lord, I need it. I forget it all the time. So I pray that we would raise each other up, that we would join into relationships with each other, and then gospel them completely. Help us to do that and do it well. In Jesus' name, amen.